Hi, welcome to our podcast. To learn more about Liverpool One Church, join us live, give financially and to get involved, head to liverpoolonechurch.com. We believe God wants to do great things in and through your life today. Enjoy this message. For One Church, it is so great to have you with us for service today, whether you are joining us in the flesh and in the room, or whether you are sat at home watching your pyjamas in your living room and just kind of tuning in online, you're just as much part of the family. We're just glad that you guys are all here today for week three of our current series called About Everyone. Now, I'm just going to let you in on a little bit of a secret because there's something that you need to know and you need to know this way ahead of time before we even get there. But I'm going to encourage every single one of us today to not make the same mistake that I sometimes make when I am looking at or reading or investigating certain passages of Bible Scripture, okay? Okay. In a moment, we're going to actually get to a passage of Scripture found in the New Testament. And it's quite a well-known, well-used passage of Scripture. And albeit, the last time that I preached on this Scripture was way back in 2020. I think that the danger is, is that if you approach it like I approached it, you're going to miss out on something that God is wanting to deposit into the seed of your soul today. When I first started to think about what I was going to speak about for this message, I was really drawn to looking at a story that's found in Luke chapter 15 in the New Testament. It's a story about the prodigal son. If you've been in church longer than a couple of months, you might have even heard of this referenced. If maybe even you're not even a church person, firstly, I'm so glad you're here today. We're building a church just for you. People who have maybe never had any kind of church experience in the past, this church is going to be for you because we were all you want. But maybe it's even a passage of Scripture that you might be aware of too. And I think the thing is, is that what we tend to do is we look at certain Scriptures and we kind of say about them, oh, I know that verse. Or I know that story, I know that parable. And now as a result and our own inner reflections of what we think we know, we almost close the door on God by His Spirit being able to grant us some sort of new insight. We almost shut the door on God being able to drop something new and fresh that's life-giving and alive into our soul because we assume like we know the story and I made that mistake. In fact, during my preparation to bring in this talk, I almost read the story and I remember praying to the Lord saying like, God, I'm gonna need you to give me something new that I've never seen before because I feel like I know what happens in this story. So I'm gonna ask you to listen for the next 34 and a half minutes just in a very open-hearted way. I'm gonna ask you to lend me your ears and lean in, but more importantly than that, that you would say the same prayer that I prayed, that God, by your Spirit, would you show me something new in this story? And I don't think that that happens by mistake or default. I think it only happens when we intentionally right-size God at the beginning of a talk such as this, and we say that actually, in spite of everything that's gone on in our week and our month so far right now, in this moment, God, all I want most is to hear the sound of your voice. I want to leave church today knowing, feeling, and sensing like you've just deposited something into my soul. Not like I've heard another talk from Luke and you've heard a few of those maybe. 
but I wanna hear from you. So that's not gonna happen unless we first choose to pray. So can we just bow our heads, close our eyes real quick? Father in heaven, I'm asking today that by the power of your spirit, that you would just, that you would cover over all the cracks in this talk. You'd cover over my words and my stuff and somehow, some way, that you would bring these words and this parable to life. That God, that we would be sat in church today, in the room or online, feeling like your words are water to our soul so that we can find you and we can feel you so that when we leave church today, we'll leave church knowing like we've just heard from you. And we ask this all in the precious name of Jesus. And everybody together said, Amen. Okay, so um, I wanna give you a little bit of an insight really into uh, who's in charge of the decorating in our house. I think that it's important that you know this. I know that some of you might have been worrying about who chooses the color scheme in our house. Well, I can let you know that it's absolutely not me. Emma has got a great eye for detail and like, you know, interior design. She She's amazing at all of that sort of stuff, you know. Sometimes she likes to buy a piece of junk and then she kind of like brings the whole thing back to life. And it's pretty amazing, actually. It's pretty inspirational. But we did have a row, actually, a couple of years ago because we bought a new house and uh, man, we've been waiting so long to move house and like this house came about and we were like, man, we, we, this is the house God's got for us. And when we went in, Emma said to me, listen, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna paint all the doors and all of the door frames black. And I was like, no, no, that, that's not a thing. Doors are white, door frames are white, skirt and boards are white. They're, they're white, trust me. I know nothing about this, but still you should trust me. And she's like saying, no, no, I, I'm going to take them all black and it's going to be like really contrasting. You know, we're going to have light walls and dark doors. Like we're taking everything black. And I'm thinking, this is just weird. Now, actually, now we've done it, like credit to Emma, like she was absolutely bob on. It it looks great, it looks impressive. But one of the things that we didn't discuss before we painted the doors black were how that they can affect you in very different ways, uh, predominantly determined by whether or not it's day or night. Because in the day, you have no problem seeing the black doors. In the nighttime, when it is pitch black, you have grave difficulty seeing those black doors. Now, this week, right, Monday night, I got up in the middle of the night, I don't even know the time, maybe like two, three, four o'clock. And I got up in the middle of the night to nip out and use the bathroom. When I came back, I was stood at the door trying to get into our bedroom and I was trying to find the doorknob. And I'm stood there and I'm like going like this. And I must have been there for about 30 seconds or something. I'm getting all confused and disorientated. And then Emma calls out from the bed like, Luke, what are you doing? And I'm like, can't find the doorknob. And she goes, the door's open. And I'm like, oh, right, okay, okay. Because here's the thing, like, you laugh as though that only happens to me, but you do the same thing. When you nip to the bathroom in the middle of the night, you don't open your eyes either, right? So you try and figure out, can I negotiate my way from my side of the bed round and through the doors across the landing? You do exactly the same thing. And I was literally stood at an open door trying to get somewhere that I really could have done with being and yet stood waiting whilst the door was in fact open. 
If I was to paraphrase that, you could almost describe it as, this was me trying to do the right thing, but doing it in completely the wrong way. I could see where I wanted to get to, but I couldn't get in there because I believed there was a closed door when in fact the door was wide open. That's actually something that we all can kind of deal with in different areas of our lives. That sentiment of feeling like, I think I'm doing the right thing, but it doesn't seem to be taking me to the place that I want to get to. It happens in all of our lives. In fact, there are many areas. We could even talk about our life relationally for a moment. There are some of you, and you're married, like you're in a relationship, and you can see exactly where you want to try and get the marriage to. You can see how you want your relationship to be. You can picture how you want your marriage to be and you can see it like you want her to do this and him to speak to you like that and he needs to be more affectionate and she needs to do A, B and C and he needs to speak this over you and you can picture it but for whatever the reason, it feels to you like you're just not able to get a marriage or a relationship like that. And no matter how much you try and do what you think is the right thing, it just never seems to bring you what you believe are the right results. You're trying to do the right thing, but it just takes you to the wrong place. And this causes us to get immensely frustrated, right? I mean, it's not just our relational lives. We could say the same thing is true about our financial lives. Some of you can have a picture in your mind, even right now, of exactly the type of relational and financial life that you want to be living in and experiencing. Like you can see how much money you think that you want to earn. You can see the car that you want to drive, the area that you want to live, the, the holiday that you want to achieve to go on with your entire family. You can picture it, but you just don't seem to be able to get there. And as a result, you kind of live life frustrated. You can picture it, but you just can't acquire it. Where I think it also affects every single one of us, if we're going to be honest, is in our faith lives too. We can oftentimes picture exactly how we want our relationship with God the Father in heaven to be with us, but we just seem to struggle in actually getting there. Maybe there are people that you know who are your friends, maybe in church, in life group, and it seems to you like they've got a great relationship with the Father, but it seems to you like you just can't get there. You can picture it. You can feel it, you can sense it, you know exactly how you want it to be. Like you wanna wake up in the morning feeling like you've got this real and authentic relationship where the God of the entire universe not only knows your name, but he knows all of the issues of your heart too. And you want to live in that level of close proximity with God your Father, but it just feels to you like it's just out of reach. Like you're trying to do the right thing, but it doesn't seem to be giving you the right answers that you're looking for. And I think that we're all like this. But one of the things that I'm convinced of as a Christian is this, is that when you choose to make a decision to follow Jesus Christ, he makes you better at life and he makes your life better. Those are two things that are outworkings of our Christianity. But what I'm fascinated by is how when you look at Scripture, these compilation of all of these ancient manuscripts and all of these historical documents that have been piled together and are now included within the context of what we call the Bible, when these Scriptures are studied and looked at, what we all begin to see, and this is fascinating to me anyway, is that when you start to look closely at the life of Jesus and the way in which he lived his life, 
having been sent as God's one and only son so that anybody that believes in him shan't die, but rather have everlasting life, that anybody that used to go around Jesus when Jesus walked the planet, what you'll find is they weren't the typical religious people you would expect to be hanging out with Jesus. In fact, what you will find regularly is people that were not even religious at all had this nat natural gravitational pull to be wherever Jesus was. Like wherever Jesus was, there would be people who were nothing like Jesus. That's why people who were nothing like Jesus liked to be around Jesus. But check this, Jesus liked them back. I mean, people who didn't have any sort of church background, they didn't go to Sunday school, they didn't grow up learning what the Ten Commandments were, they didn't learn a prayer when they were in school, people who knew nothing about the Judaic system of law and the temple worship and all of that background and all of that context, people that were nothing like Jesus liked to be around Jesus and Jesus liked them back. In fact, what you find in the Scriptures is people who were not only irreligious, but they were just completely ordinary and normal people. They would formulate these massive crowds. And wherever Jesus would go, the crowds would follow. So much so that oftentimes people would be thrust against the very physical body of Jesus because this was like a whole nother level of celebritism, right? This was Jesus and where he would go, the crowds would all flock to be around Jesus. Why? Because people that were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus and Jesus liked them back. In fact, at the very start of Luke chapter 15, before we jump into our main body of text today, I want to give you this small insight into what it was really like to be around Jesus when he walked the planet. Luke 15 verse one tells us, tax collectors who were despised, by the way, and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. I wondered for a moment, like, what is the difference then between a regular sinner, like somebody who's living life for themselves, just discourteous of anything God might have for them, not wanting to implement God's plan for their life? What's the difference between an ordinary and regular sinner versus a notorious sinner? Well, the difference is really all about reputation because you could be a sinner and maybe nobody would even know of the areas in life that you would sin and you could have a great little happy sin time to yourself. But if you were a notorious sinner, it's almost like your reputation would be in the community and be out there in the city that you were somebody that was marked as being a sinful person and would continuously do sinful things. So here's what we find. Not just ordinary sinners, but notorious sinners. People that were marked and scarred with a reputation as being a sinning person, they loved to be around Jesus. But the crazy thing is, is the text doesn't even tell us they like to be around Jesus. It tells us that they would often like to be around Jesus. So in other words, these people with this marked reputation of being a sinner, they would regularly go and listen to Jesus speak, which tells me that they have been in Jesus's presence and they've heard him speak and there was something about Jesus and the way that he was that made them feel comfortable to be able to come back the next day or the next week and feel like this is somebody that I can be around. Why is that? Because people that were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus, and Jesus liked them back. 
But there can be a little bit of a disconnect on this subject anyway. Because when we read this text and we read scriptures like we have been starting to do, it can feel to us like, well, that was okay for Jesus back then. I mean, it's great that these sinful people who were notorious could be around Jesus, but that's not how it is today. We can read these passages of scripture and almost feel completely disconnected, like it's great that that could happen back then, but that isn't what happens in the church today. Like, it's great that Jesus would have people that had a reputation for being a sinner around him back then. But in the church, man, if I was ever going to be a part of a church, I better make sure that I've got my life in order, that I'm holier than thou, that I've purchased my Nike Jerusalems and I wear the same Christian clothes that everybody else wears. I better make sure that my hands are righteous and that I'm never found out to be caught doing anything wrong. And we kind of think now that it's so different because church is for churchy people. And we think that it's for churchy people because in church, we can often use churchy language, and that isn't helpful. And we use churchy music that could be decades old, even sometimes hundreds of years old, played on instruments that nobody ever listens to on their stereo at home anymore. I mean, that's the reality of what we've made the church. And I'm not talking necessarily about Liverpool One Church. I'm talking globally about the church. The church has become now more renowned for its religious rituals than it's focused on relationships with real people. And that's why there's this disconnect that we all feel. And the other thing is, is we just do weird stuff. I can remember being at church and I was probably about 16 or 17 years of age and there were two, they were called elders. They were the leaders at the church and they felt that they had a word from God that they'd seen a vision and what they had to do as the leaders of the church was they had to stand at the front with arms stretched out like this, both joining each other's hands to form this archway and they said that if the people didn't walk through the archway, then they wouldn't get into heaven. Now let me tell you, it was the weirdest thing I've ever seen in my life. All of these adult people like parading around a room, walking through the golden arches that determine whether you get into heaven or not. And I sat at the back of the room just literally going, no way, I am not doing that. That is weird. But what frustrated me the most was there's nothing in Scripture anywhere that says any of that nonsense. And yet, we seem to fill our churches with stuff that is often perceived to be nonsense. And that's why, really, as a church, we're really trying our best to resist the things that often make church so resistible. We don't want to do something that's weird. Hey, listen, if it's weird for the masses, we're just not going to do it. You want to crack a dance, wave the flag, that it's just not going to be the church for you because we're going to resist anything that makes church resistible for everybody else. It's just not what we want to be like. And yet what we see in the stories in the text is that people that were nothing like Jesus like to be around Jesus. Jesus liked them back. So I want us to jump in to the story of the prodigal son. And I think that the main reason of what I'm going to try and accomplish for you today is even if this is your very first time here at Liverpool One Church, is I want you to leave 
having a crystal clear understanding of who God is and how God sees you. But what we don't want you to do is to ever come into Liverpool One Church and think that this is our thing, because it's absolutely not. We want you to come to church knowing that this is just as much your thing. If it's our thing, it's the collective hour. It's every single one of us from different backgrounds, different contexts of life, different environments, different social standing, different financial standing. Like this is who the church is really for. It's not for those at the front and those in the crowd. It's for you, it's for us, it's all of our church. So the story in the prodigal son, and we don't really have huge amounts of time for me to read all of the scripture, but if I was to start to break it down and paraphrase it, it's basically a story that is about a dad who has two sons. And actually, it's a broken and somewhat dysfunctional family unit. Like there's stuff going on in this house in the same way that there's stuff going on in your house. It feels a bit awkward sometimes. It feels a little bit weird. And both kids really are quite disconnected from the father, but in very contrasting ways. But the one son that tends to, and I think unfairly, get the headlines to this particular story is known to us because when Jesus sits down with this crowd and mass of people that are nothing like him, he starts to tell this story to try and paint a picture with words about what the father heart of God really is like. And he starts to describe this son who is loved by the father, but he in essence initiates a conversation with his dad one day where he literally says to him like, hey dad, here's the thing. I know that you've done very well for yourself and I know that we own lots of property. I know that we have lots of staff and lots of servants in the house. And I know that you have a lot of money, but I know that when you die, all of your money and all of my inheritance is gonna come my way. But my problem is, is that you keep living. I would rather live now, dad, as though you were dead. And what I want to do is I want to live today as though you were dead, which would mean that you cash in your money, that you sell some property, that you close some business deals, that you sell the family business so I can inherit my money now. Because the thing is, Dad, I've got plans. Thing is, Dad, I've got some good ideas about what I need to be able to do. And whilst you're still living, it's just impeding all of my plans. The problem really is, Dad, you just won't die. And now here's the thing. The father wanted a relationship with his son so much that he chose the shortest route back to a good and healthy relationship. He ended up actually granting him his requests, which must have been heartbreaking for the father because he knew that his son was a million miles away from him. In the same way that you know when one of your children are off. Like they sit down at the family dinner table and like there's always one with the earphones in, always online, on Snap, on TikTok, on Insta, on Facebook. Like they'll do anything they possibly can rather than engage in a real conversation with you as a parent. This exact thing was happening in this house So the father, wanting a relationship with his son, chose the shortest route back and he gave him everything that he'd asked for. This would have freaked the crowd out. And the reason being is because when Jesus was telling this story, 
they would have been made aware of what there is written in the Old Testament book of Leviticus that says that if you have a rebellious son, you should stone him to death. And here, in fact, it, would actually, it says in the text that you should stone him to death, and if you don't, then you will be the fool. So here what we find is this crowd will have been freaked out by this idea because this father is willing to encounter so much relational shrapnel and damage as a result of the son's decision. He knew that his reputation would be ruined in the community, ruined in, in business. It was never going to be the same for him. And yet the crowd would have been astounded at the fact that this was the level of willingness that the father was wanting to go to just to try and get his son back. So the son, right, he tentatively leaves the father's house and he waves goodbye. Perhaps he drives away in his brand new BMW M3 with the sport pack and everything. And he's got his suitcases full of money. And now he's probably going to go and take a rented accommodation package somewhere, maybe even on the docks. That's right, on Albert Dock. And he's going to be staying in the swankiest penthouse that overlooks the city because he's got everything that he thinks that he wants. I mean, it's right next to the casino as well, which is always real helpful. It means that he can stagger home from being on his night out almost every night. I mean, not only is it a great place to live, but it's not a million miles away from Lime Street too, which means if he wants to, on a Friday and Saturday, he can jump the two-hour Pendolino train and he'd be in London in two hours' time. He can go and party like crazy in London or he can visit other amazing cities around the world and he can party hard. He can gamble hard. He can drink hard. I mean, this guy, this son, I mean, he's sleeping with all the girls, sometimes prostitutes. He's probably doing drugs. He's doing alcohol. Like this kid is literally living recklessly with everything that his father has spent his entire lifetime building as an inheritance for his boys. But then eventually, not initially, but eventually, the son starts to watch his bank account run out and run out and run lower and run lower to the point at which he now has no reserves. He's spent all of the father's money on just a reckless way of living and doing life. And now he starts to wonder and think about what it's like at home. He's starting to miss home, but he has no clue if home is missing him. So what does he do now? Well, he starts to do the same thing that we would do. He comes up with a plan. It's a cunning plan. He basically determines now, actually, because he spent all of not only his father's money, but it was probably generational wealth too. So he's probably sold and spent his father's 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 money. He realizes in his own mind that he needs to try and get back into the father's house, but he has no clue how to do it. So he comes up with a plan. And his plan literally looks like this. He's going to go back and he's going to apologize to his father, but say to his dad, look, I know you're never going to have me back as a son of the house. So will you just let me come and just work as one of the most lowly paid servants in the house? Because even those that are treated the worst in your house, they still have food and water and shelter and warmth. He's coming up with his plan now where he's saying, that's what I'll do. I'm going to go back to my father's house and I'm going to present myself and I'm going to try and find out, is there a way back in? And now 
the crowd are shocked. Because now for the first time, the crowd and everybody listening to Jesus are all starting to put the pieces together. They're now thinking, hmm, I wonder if this father would ever have a son like that back. They're all starting to think, I wonder whether this father, having gone through all that this kid has put him through, I wonder whether he would ever be willing to forgive a kid like that. And now they start to join the lines between the dots. Now it's no longer about the son. Now they're asking the very same question, but this time it's about themselves. Now they're saying, I wonder what that father in that house would be like towards somebody like me. And now they're probably gonna do the same thing that you and I would do. You start to recount as you track back in your life all of the mistakes and all of the errors, all of your sin that you are guilty and responsible of. And they start to think about the night that it went crazy on the stag do. They start to think about the night on the hen do when you went and did that and took that. Now they're starting to think about the time when you got so drunk, you turned up home and you were just so abusive towards your wife. Now they're thinking about the times that they've gone into the office and they were cruel and unkind and they spoke really hurtful words. Now they're lining up all of their own mistakes and now they're turning the whole thing around and they're saying, I wonder whether a father like that, I wonder what his response would be to somebody like me. So now the scriptures tell us what happens. Verse 17, when he finally came to his senses, the son, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have enough food to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of ever being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father. This is where really he's doing what you and I do all the time. He can see where he wants to get to in life, but now he's starting to go about it all the wrong way, although he's doing what he thinks is right because he doesn't understand the character of the father. He can see a relationship that he wants to have restored with his father, but he's going about it in a way that he thinks is right when actually it's completely wrong because he's failing to understand who his father really is and what his father is really like. He's doing what you and I do. He's just overthinking the whole deal. His mind has gone to work. He's so busy racing thought, racing heart, trying to figure out how am I gonna get back? What am I gonna have to say? If we were to try and summarize it, it'd be doing this. He's trying to figure out, like, considering all of the shame and all of the embarrassment that I've caused my father, is there anything that I can do as a son to make myself somewhat more attractive to him? And this is something that we do all the time. We make the same mistake. Because we start to say about our relationship with God, even though we think we're doing it the right way, it's actually the wrong way. We say, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll get right with God when I've stopped sinning and I've stopped being immature and I've stopped doing A, B, and C. Or we say, I'm gonna get right with God when I've got it out my system, when I've partied a little harder, when I've sown some more oats, when I've been a little bit more crazy, when I'm not doing that anymore, that's when I'm gonna get right with God. What we do is we say, I'm gonna get right with God when I'm financially stable and I'm able to throw something into the bucket. Like when my life is holy and righteous and shaped perfectly well, that's when I'm gonna get into a real relationship with God. 
And I think that this is exactly what this son was trying to do. He was trying to figure it all out, like, what am I going to need to do? Who am I going to need to become in order to be the kind of person that would ever be accepted by the Father again? He's trying to do the right thing, but in essence, he's going about it all the wrong way. So now, let us look at what the Father's response is towards this one wayward son. It tells us in the text that whilst he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Isn't that great to know that whilst this crazy and reckless son who's caused all of this shame and all of this embarrassment and has been away that really is just downright crazy, isn't it funny that when you understand what the father is doing all the time whilst the son is out, it tells us that he's looking He's waiting for his return. He's scouring the horizon for the day that he can see a dot against the shadow of the sunlight of his boy coming home. Whilst he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with. Now, I want you to see the blank because whatever Jesus is about to tell the crowd that the father is filled with now is an absolute game changer. Whatever Jesus is about to tell the crowd about whatever the emotion is that the father's feeling as he's scouring the horizon, as he sees the sun as a blot against the sunlight, whatever it is that's the emotion that's feeling in the father's heart is a game changer, not only for the son, but also for everybody else listening because there are so many options available. And what Jesus is about to do is he's about to make something so crystal clear that previously has been so unclear. What Jesus is about to do with the next words that follow filled with is bring so much clarification into everything that has previously been uncertain in not knowing whether or not the Father would be willing to embrace the Son again. And there are many things that Jesus could have filled in the blank that he could have said that the father was filled with anger, with bitterness, resentment, and these would all have been completely justified. But it's not the words that Jesus chose to use to the crowd. He says that whilst he was still a long way off, the father saw him coming and filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him and kissed him. He was filled with love and compassion towards the one that had caused so much carnage, hurt and heartache. And now the crowd were like, what? Seriously? This father that you're portraying to me is filled with love and compassion just because I'm coming home to him? And Jesus was like, absolutely Yes. Verse 21, this is the father's response. He said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to his servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and now has returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So the party began. If you want to know really what the father's response was to the wayward son that chose to reconnect relationally with him, 
It was to throw him a party. It was to give him a coat. It was to give him a ring that will have had the family's crest on it. It's a sign or an emblem of ownership. He was given new shoes. Who who doesn't want new shoes? This was all an attempt by the father to say to him, you don't have to come and be a servant in my house anymore because you're my son. And as a son, there are things that are afforded to you. So let's kill the fatted calf. Here's your coat. Here's your ring, here's your shoes. You can have it all because I never wanted you to live without having it all. Everything I have is yours. You can have it all. And we know that the Son comes and enters into a real and authentic relationship with the Father again. But don't forget that this is a story that's not about a dad with one son. It's about a dad that has two sons. And both brothers were relationally defunct. The only difference was, was that one was in the father's house. He stayed, he did the chores, but really he despised his dad and the other chose to leave and cash in on all of his inheritance. But for the brother that stayed, he was equally a million miles away from where the father was relationally. And he has a moan and a groan to the Father. And this is really something that I think that God's shown to me this week that I've never really seen before. Because I think that some of you know what that's like. You know what it's like, perhaps if you're not the prodigal out living crazy, but maybe you're the person in church, but you're still a million miles away from the Father. And actually seeing the attention that other people get around you who are new to faith, it kind of drives you a little bit mad too. In the same way that it did to this brother. And he's moaning and he's groaning to his dad and his dad has to rectify this relationship too. And this is what he says in verse 31 to the other brother that's in the house, that's in the safety of a relationship with the father, but it's all a bit disjointed. He has a conversation where he's moaning to him and now the father responds to him. And he says, my son, you're always with me. You've always been in the house. Here I am. He's saying, you're always with me. And everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead. and Now he's alive again. He was lost, but now he's found. You see, you can be away from home and relationally broke with the father or you can be in the home and still relationally broke with the Father. And I think that this is a statement that the Father is making to the Son that we often think about as being a statement that we are to volunteer up to the Father. When we hear words like that, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. We sometimes, we even put it to words in song and we sing to God like songs that says, like, here I am, I'm with you. Here I am, God, everything I have is yours. And we worship God saying, everything that I have is yours. I'm available to you. Everything I have is yours. You can have it all. And yet, for the one that's relationally disconnected in the house, we see the Father say to Him, Here I am, you can have it all. Okay, you can see me giving him the coat and the ring and the shoes, but but I'm with you always, you can have it all. What, what, What good thing would I not give out to you? What good thing would I not pour out to you? I'm always with you, I'm here right now, I'm with you, I'm available for you and you can have it all. 
And I think that realistically, as we close today, my question to you is this, whether your son won, the prodigal, daughter won, you're out there doing your own thing, maybe trying to run away from God, avoid God, maybe you've known Him previously, maybe you've not, but you actually in your heart, you want that real relationship, but you've never known how to get there. In a moment, I'm gonna tell you exactly what you need to do. Or maybe you're son too, or daughter too, and you're not away living life crazy, you're just as lost and broken, but you're in the house. Then for you, what I want you to understand is the word for you is that, God would sing a song over you that says, here I am, son, here I am, daughter. Everything that I have is yours. There's not one dream. There's not one aspiration. There's not one good thing that I would ever withhold from you. Like whatever you can dream, like it's yours, it's yours. But if your son one, daughter one, or son two, daughter two, there comes a point at which you've got to make a decision that I'm just going to return home. So as we stand and pray today, can we all stand up and just close our eyes, bow our heads? I'm gonna give an invitation and it's more of a request to say, look, in the house, out of the house, but broken in your relationship with God the Father, this is the time for you to just get right with Him and not determine in your heart that you've gotta be holy or righteous before you do it, not try and figure it all out, not try and create a way but you just need to come just as you are with your stuff, with your baggage. And you literally need to voice like, here I am with my broken stuff, with my messed up stuff, like here I am, but I want in with you. And if you're in the church, you're in the house, but still a million miles away, you need to know that that's the song that the Father in heaven sings over you today. Here I am and everything I have is yours. You've never been anywhere. I've not gone anywhere. Here I am. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, let's pray real quick. Heavenly Father, I pray for every son and daughter of yours that's in church today. And no matter whether they're the prodigal or not, I pray and ask that today by the power of your Spirit, that you would just do something that only you could do, that you would just drop something into the depth of their heart right now, that would encourage them to feel strong and confident, knowing that if they come to the Father, that You will welcome them back with open arms. So for every person that's done a runner, every person that's tried to avoid being close to You, today's the day where we're voicing with our hearts saying, we want that relationship with You that's real and authentic. We wanna know You in a real way. And for those of us that are in the house, but still broken and still disjointed. Today, we receive the words that you spoke in this story. I'm always with you. Here I am. You can have it all. Maybe some of you today, you need to know that they're the words of the Father. So even now with every eye closed and every head still bowed, just as the band starts to sing that over you, this needs to be your reality. That the Father heart of God to you is saying, here I am and you can have it all. There's not one good thing that I would withhold from you. You can take it. You can have it. You can have my joy. You can have my peace. You can have my life. 
you can have my confidence to not live with anxiety and depression, but a life that is thriving with life. You can have it. I won't withhold one good thing from you. In the rain and in the snow, on the mountain and in the valley, in the good times and in the bad times, here I am withholding not one good thing. You can have it all. You can take it all because I withhold nothing from you. You're my son. You're my daughter. So now is the time to lay the stuff aside and come back, come home, come and be in relationship with me. You can have it all. You can take it all. You can take it all. to know you, that you're real, that you're alive, that you're well, that our heart and what matters in our heart is what matters to your heart. You're here, your presence is here and we can have it all. We can have it all in the name of Jesus. Thanks for joining us today. We hope that you can take that message and apply it to your life. Also, don't forget to take a moment to subscribe, rate and review this podcast. To get connected or stay more connected to the life of Liverpool One Church and learn how you can join us live, visit liverpoolonechurch.com. Thanks again for joining us and we hope to see you again soon.